Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, The Mormon Wellness Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive. One, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode MTC Sex Scandal. Update BYU Police Report Bombshells. In the last episode, I detailed my efforts to obtain from the BYU Police Department an unredacted copy of the police reports related to their investigation of Joseph Bishop and his alleged rape of McKenna Denson at the MTC back in 1984. I am still waiting to hear back from the BYU Police Department in response to my requests and my appeal. But in the meantime, I have managed to find a less redacted copy of the police reports. It is less redacted. It is not completely unredacted. There are still some lines in it that are blacked out. But compared to the police reports that were released to the media and that were released to me, There are three places where it is less redacted, three places where we can now know what was behind the blacked out lines in the police reports. And what we can see is that in all three cases, the BYU Police Department may indeed have had reasons for blacking out these lines, reasons that have nothing to do with the public information laws in Utah, but have reasons to do with an ongoing cover-up of information obtained by the BYU Police Department in their investigation. The first unredacted line I have in this new copy of police reports is on the bottom of page 6. This is where the BYU police are interviewing Joseph Bishop at his home in Arizona. In the version of the police reports released to the public and to me, it states as follows. Interview with Joseph Bishop. After interviewing blank, and that would be McKenna Denson, after interviewing blank, Detective Long and I met with Joseph at his blank residence on December 5, 2017. Joseph's account was fairly similar to blank, except for the rape. Joseph told us that he did go to a small MTC preparation room in the cafeteria area with blank. Then while talking to her, he asked her to show him her breasts, which she did. When asked to explain why his account about the rape was different than hers, He said he either can't remember it or that blank was exaggerating her account. Joseph said the room did not have a bed, TV, or VHS tapes. It is at this point in the redacted version released to the media that four entire sentences are redacted. They are completely 
blacked out so that the reports underneath those blacked out places cannot be read. In the new version and the less redacted version of police reports that I have obtained since last week, I can now read to you what is under the first two of those four redacted lines. Here is what it says. He, Joseph Bishop, said he also gave a back rub to blank where he rubbed her buttocks. Blank was living in his house at the time, period. Let me read that once again. He said he also gave a back rub to blank where he rubbed her buttocks. Blank was living in his house at the time, period. If I'm understanding these police reports correctly, the person referred to by the blank in this sentence is not McKenna Denson. It is instead another sister missionary who was at the MTC at the same time that Joseph Bishop was the president. And indeed, this other sister missionary, who for purposes of this podcast, I will refer to as Sister Y, I do have possession of her first and last name. But out of respect for her privacy, I will refer to her as Sister Y. Sister Y was already referred to earlier in these police reports, right before the police went to go see Joseph Bishop. And as they were concluding their interview with McKenna Denson, the police reports on page 6 state, blank who would be McKenna in this case, McKenna Denson also told us about another missionary that may have been assaulted during the same time frame. Her name was blank. That's Sister Y. Attempts to identify and locate Sister Y have been unsuccessful. Then there are two redacted sentences, which remain redacted even in my new and improved version of the police reports, and then it goes right into the interview with Joseph Bishop. So now, in context, we are better able to understand this unredacted sentence from the police report at the bottom of page 6. He, Joseph Bishop, said he also gave a back rub to Sister Y, where he rubbed her buttocks. Sister Y was living in his house at the time, period. Now, I am trying to put the pieces of this puzzle together, just like the rest of you are. And if my understanding is correct... Sister Y is one of the other sister missionaries who, with McKenna Denson, met in Joseph Bishop's office at the MTC in order to talk about things related to their sexuality and past sexual experiences they had had in their childhood and teenage years. And when Joseph Bishop winnowed those four sister missionaries down to two missionaries, including McKenna Denson, Sister Y was the other sister missionary meeting with McKenna Denson in Joseph Bishop's office. And then Joseph Bishop winnowed that down to meetings one-on-one with McKenna Denson. It is unknown whether Joseph Bishop was doing the same kind of winnowing with the other three sister missionaries as he did with McKenna Denson, first winnowing them from a group of four down to a group of two, and then winnowing them from a group of two down to one-on-one conversations with these sister missionaries. Again, if I am understanding all the information that has come to light, including the recorded interview that McKenna Denson did with Joseph Bishop in early December of 2017, Sister Y is the missionary who attempted to commit suicide at the MTC. Sister Y is the sister missionary that after that happened, Joseph Bishop then took her, Sister Y, into his house in order to hopefully try to rehabilitate her and make her feel better so that she could go back to the MTC and complete her training and then go 
on her mission. And again, if I'm understanding the information correctly, Sister Y is the other sister missionary who in 2010 made a report to her priesthood leaders regarding the sexual assault that Joseph Bishop did on her back in 1984 at the MTC. Her priesthood leaders reported this allegation to Joseph Bishop's priesthood leaders. Joseph Bishop's priesthood leaders confronted him and he denied the allegation, so they took no disciplinary action against him. This was the same year that the same priesthood leaders apparently confronted Joseph Bishop regarding the allegations made by McKenna Denson, which Joseph Bishop also denied, and which Joseph Bishop's priesthood leaders once again felt they didn't have enough information to proceed with a disciplinary hearing. Now, I do not know the reason why Sister Y attempted suicide at the MTC, but it is certainly possible that the reason she did was because of the undue attention that she was receiving from Joseph Bishop. If that is the case, it makes it only more appalling that Sister Y was then taken into Joseph Bishop's home in order to recuperate, where he again assaulted her sexually. And going back to the audio recording of the interview that McKenna Denson did with Joseph Bishop in early December of 2017, it is my understanding that Sister Y is the sister that McKenna Denson confronted Joseph Bishop about in that interview. McKenna Denson was not able to remember the last name of this sister missionary and asked Joseph Bishop if he remembered her and then said her first name. And Joseph Bishop remembered her, not only her first name, but her last name. McKenna Denson then asks in the interview if Joseph Bishop molested Sister Y, and Joseph Bishop says yes. I think it is also in the audio recorded interview where Joseph Bishop says that he gave Sister Y a back rub and then it became frisky, quote unquote. Well, in the interview, we don't know what he meant by frisky, but in the police reports, Joseph Bishop goes on to define a little more what he means by frisky, and that was giving Sister Y a back rub where he rubbed her buttocks. Once again, that line in the police report was redacted. That means the BYU police did not want the public to know that Joseph Bishop had admitted to sexually assaulting another sister missionary. And I will note parenthetically that that is an abuse of the GRAMA statute, the Government Records Access and Management Act, the Utah version of the Freedom of Information Act, that is not allowed to be redacted under the law in this police report. That is not a legal basis for redacting that information. What would have been appropriate would have been to redact the information of the name of this sister missionary, but not to redact the other parts. Properly redacted, the BYU Police Department should have released it as follows. He said he also gave a back rub to Blank, where he rubbed her buttocks. Blank was living in his house at the time. That is what should have been released to the public. That is what the law requires to be released to the public. And still, in this less redacted version that has come into my hands, the next two sentences in the police report remain blacked out. I will continue to try and get to the bottom of this and find out what's behind those last two blacked out sentences in the police report, and I will keep you updated on that as things progress. But that's not all that is unredacted in this new version of the police reports that I've received. The second part is on page 7. At the top of page 7, it states further information. Now, this is in the police report that is available to the public. Between the time Blank reported the rape and her interview with us in Blank, Blank had traveled to Blank, 
and met with Joseph. So this is McKenna traveling to Arizona to meet with Joseph, Joseph Bishop. She spoke with him about this incident that took place at the MTC. Blank said he admitted to everything except the rape. And that is, of course, McKenna saying that he, Joseph Bishop, admitted to everything except the rape. McKenna, and that's blanked out too, McKenna recorded the conversation and provided us a copy of it. I listened to it, and it was consistent to their interviews except the facts of the rape and the room layout. He mostly said he didn't remember when blank McKenna confronted him about the rape. And by that sentence, I think that what they mean is that Joseph Bishop, when McKenna confronts him about the rape and is recording him, Joseph Bishop is saying he doesn't remember the rape when he's being confronted about it by McKenna. Let me read that sentence once again. He, Joseph Bishop, mostly said he didn't remember when McKenna confronted him about the rape. And that would be an accurate description of her taped interview with Joseph Bishop. Now, the next two lines are blacked out in the police reports released to the public. But in the police reports that I have obtained, I know what is behind those two blacked out lines. And here is what it says. This is a very common sentence that we find in many police reports. And what it has to do with is the existence of an audio taped recording that the BYU police made of their interview with Joseph Bishop. I had already mentioned in a prior episode that I had come into information that these interviews were recorded, but I did not come into that information through the police reports. The police reports themselves are trying to hide the fact that the interview with Joseph Bishop was recorded. Here's what that redacted sentence on page 7 says. A copy of the recording is attached to this report. Refer to the recording for more details. Period. So as I say, I read that type of language in police reports all the time. It's simply saying this is a synopsis of the interview that we conducted with a person, but this was recorded and you can listen to the recording if you want more details. That line was redacted. Now there's only one reason in the world that the BYU Police Department would redact that sentence, and that is because they do not want the public to know that there exists a tape recording of their interview with Joseph Bishop, which has more details in it than what they have put in their police report. Of course it has more details. The BYU police drove from Provo, Utah, all the way down to Arizona to interview Joseph Bishop. Their interview would have lasted probably at least an hour. So you can bet there are a lot more details in that taped interview than what appear in the police reports. And I am willing to bet my bottom dollar that there are details in that interview that the BYU police does not want the public to know. Otherwise, why would they be redacting the police reports released to the public specifically in order to hide the fact that that tape recording exists? As I mentioned in the last podcast, I have a public information request into the BYU police specifically requesting that audio recording, and I will continue to follow up with that until they produce the recording or until a judge tells me that they don't have to. Finally, in my newly received police reports that is less redacted than the version released to the public, the third area where I have additional information to share with you is found on page 9. You will remember that on page 9, there are three sentences. It is a supplemental narrative. It is dated January 11, 2018. All three sentences of that supplemental narrative are redacted in the version released to the public, but I now have a version of the police reports where I can read to you what is contained behind 
those redactions. And these lines are redacted for exactly the same reason that the lines about the audio recording of the police interview with Joseph Bishop were redacted in order to hide the fact that there is additional information in the police file that the police does not want the public to know is in the police file, and likely because there are details in that additional information that the police does not want the public to know. Here's what it says behind the redactions. On page 9, McKenna Denson sent me a rough draft of her statement through email. However, the case was closed before she was able to send me a completed version. Let me read that once again. McKenna Denson sent me a rough draft of her statement through email. However, the case was closed before she was able to send me a completed version. Now, McKenna Denson is once again blacked out in this new version of the police report, but it's obvious who they're talking about. She is the alleged victim here. She is the one who sent a rough draft of her statement through email to police. But before she was able to send a completed version of her statement, the case was closed because the prosecuting attorney said the statute of limitations had run. So the only reason for the police to redact these sentences is because they don't want the public to know about the existence of a rough draft statement sent to police by McKenna Denson. It was sent by email. It was obviously received by the police. It was then obviously printed off by the police. And then it was obviously put into the police file by the police. That's what you do with statements from alleged victims. You print them off and you put them in the file. This statement by McKenna Denson is in the possession of the BYU Police Department, and they are playing a dangerous game of cat and mouse. They are redacting their police reports in such a way as to hide the existence of this statement by McKenna Denson, and they are redacting their police reports in order to hide the existence of the audio recording of their interview with Joseph Bishop. And once again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that the reason they're hiding the existence of this recording and this document is because they don't want to release the contents of this recording and this statement to the public. Now, once again, this is in violation of the law. These redactions are not permitted under the law. What is required by the law is that when a request is made for police reports under the Freedom of Information Act in Utah, that the police give up everything that they have. Now, they can redact it, of course. Once again, that's commonplace. They can redact things in order to hide the names and identifying information of parties or victims in the police reports. But you don't get to redact police reports in order to hide other information that you have in your police file and then also not send that additional information that's in your police file in response to the Freedom of Information Act request. To be clear, a Freedom of Information Act request to the BYU police requires them to give up anything and everything that they have. The Freedom of Information Act does not require the person requesting the information to say, hey, I want the statement by McKenna Denson that she wrote to you as part of your investigation. No, they're supposed to produce that as a matter of course. But what they're doing instead is hiding the existence of this information. And then when people such as myself make requests under the Freedom of Information Act, they're going to produce something that is redacted to hide additional information that they have and not produce that additional information even though they are required under the law to do so. That is why I am calling this a dangerous game of cat and mouse that the BYU Police Department is playing. I am unable to tell you if they are consulting with other people higher up in order to make these decisions or whether they're making these decisions 
on their own, but I will say that these are redactions that are very much out of the ordinary that I see in police reports, and I will also note for the record that the immediate supervisor of the chief of police of the BYU Police Department is the vice president of student life at BYU. And from the vice president of student life at BYU, it goes up to the president of BYU, and from the president of BYU, it goes up to the apostles. So there is a direct line of authority under which the chief of police at BYU operates. And that line of authority goes straight up to the apostles. Once again, I cannot say whether the apostles are involved in directing what is and what is not disclosed to the public in these reports. All I'm saying is that is the line of authority that the police chief would go to if the police chief had any questions about what he should or should not disclose to the public in these police reports. Now, here is something I think you will find interesting, because through more digging and more accessing of information, I was able to come into possession of a copy of the rough draft statement that McKenna Denson emailed to the BYU Police Department and which they are trying to hide the existence of in their redactions on page 9. There are a couple of very significant items in this six-page statement, and I will comment on them when we get to them. But there is certainly some bombshell information in this six-page document, which may indeed be the reason the BYU police is trying to hide the existence of this document and refusing tenaciously to disclose not only the contents of this document, but the existence of this document to the public. Once again, this is a six-page typewritten statement by McKenna Denson, dated December 6, 2017, and it was emailed to the police at BYU on December 7th. 2017. It says, R.E. Joseph Layton Bishop II, Statement of the Facts. I, McKenna Denson, previously known as blank, I'm going to be doing some redactions of my own on this letter. Now, in this letter that I have, there are no redactions, but I'm going to redact it as I read it in this podcast in order to protect the privacy of certain parties. I, McKenna Denson, previously known as blank, entered the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah, on or about the 4th of January, 1984, to serve a mission call in the Columbia Cali Mission. Now, that's C-A-L-I, the Columbia Cali Mission. The first day I arrived, all the missionaries were asked to meet in an auditorium. I was singled out in a crowd of twelve to 1,500 missionaries by President Joseph L. Bishop and asked to bear my testimony. The following day, he singled me out again and asked me to give the prayer. I don't recall if it was the opening or the closing prayer. I was called out of my Spanish class on multiple occasions to go to the president's office. One instance included three other sister missionaries. We were asked specific questions about our childhood and our family's activity in the church. We each spoke of childhood trauma. We all seemed to have that commonality. Each of us had endured sexual abuse. On another occasion, President Bishop called me out of class and only one of the three other sisters was in the president's office. Her name was blank. And this is Sister Y. She, Sister Y, told a story about going to the prom with a boy and she fell asleep on his shoulder and drooled on his shoulder. I remember this because I was mortified. I would have never told that story out loud. Sister Y and I met with President Bishop on a couple of other occasions but I don't recall any conversations that were not centered around our childhoods. 
I had a baby out of wedlock and gave her up for adoption through the church. President Bishop gave me special permission to go to the temple and write her a letter. Going to page two. On a separate occasion in the president's office, he told me we were alone. He told me that he and his wife were in a sexless relationship. He shared that he liked her to fix a candlelit dinner and wear a blouse that had elastic. I pictured a peasant blouse. President Bishop said he liked her to wear it pulled down over her breasts, so she was bare-breasted at dinner. On a separate occasion, President Bishop said that he and a few other leaders liked to go to the hot springs or hot tub in Wyoming. He told of an incident where a young woman was there with them, and she took off her bikini top and exposed her bare breasts. The most serious incident occurred one afternoon. I was called from class to meet with President Bishop in his office. He told me he wanted to show me a special room where he did his preparing or preparations, quote-unquote. He escorted me out of his office and we turned toward the reception area. We went down a hallway and he opened a locked door that led dot 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 and the dot 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 is in her letter. He opened a locked doorway that led dot dot dot. I don't remember if there were any stairs or not, but I think there might have been. He escorted me through the first locked door and towards another small storage room, which was also locked. He unlocked that door, escorted me in, turned on the light, and closed the door. Now, of course, at this part in the report, McKenna Denson is describing the lead-up to Joseph Bishop taking her to his special preparation room in the basement and raping her. But what is critical in this statement is that McKenna Denson remembers not just one, but two locked doors through which President Bishop had to take her in order to get to his room where he raped her. You will recall that when this story was initially hitting the fan back in late March of 2018, on Thursday, March 22nd, after McKenna's description of this room had been circulated in the media, an anonymous former employee at the MTC had come forward and had said that he worked in the basement and that he had to come forward because McKenna Denson's description of that odd room in the basement was exactly the way it was when this former employee worked there. And on top of that, this former employee said that in order to get to this room in the basement from the regular part of the MTC on the ground floor, a person had to go through more than one locked door to get there. There was no way that any missionary should have known about the existence of this room, which McKenna Denson obviously knew about because she accurately described it in her statements to the press. But in her statements to the press, McKenna Denson, to my knowledge, did not mention anything about having to go through locked doors in order to get to this room. But in this letter to the BYU police written by McKenna Denson and sent to them on December 7th, 2017, she mentions not just one but two locked doors through which Joseph Bishop took her in order to get to this room. This is huge corroborative evidence that what McKenna Denson is saying is accurate. If she had made this statement after the anonymous employee came forward in the end of March of 2018, well, then she could have been copying what this employee said. But no, she didn't. She said it months before on December 7th of 2017. This is rock-solid corroboration 
that what McKenna Denson is saying about the existence of this room and her being taken there by Joseph Bishop actually happened. So let me read it to you once again, and then I'll go on with the letter. He escorted me out of his office, and we turned toward the reception area. We went down a hallway, and he opened a locked door that led dot, dot, dot. I don't remember if there were any stairs or not, but I think there might have been. He escorted me through the first locked door and towards another small storage room, which was also locked. He unlocked that door, escorted me in, turned on the light, and closed the door. Going on now with a letter by McKenna Denson. And once again, remember that this is the letter the BYU Police Department does not want the public to know even exists. Continuing with McKenna Denson's statement to the police, we're still on page two. There were no windows in this room. There were no windows. This was like a storage closet. In this room, there was a twin-size bed, dormitory style, not with a headboard and footboard. This was on the right as we entered. Across from that was a small table, the kind used in Relief Society or any classroom in a church. There was a chair, a metal chair with something on the seats. Lots of something. Couldn't sit there. In my mind I see books and magazines, but I do not know if that is accurate. I just know the chair was occupied by stuff. We sat on the bed. I sat near the door. He sat next to me. He told me that he liked to go to that room to get away and because it was quiet. We chatted, generically, for a bit. Then he leaned in to kiss me. I pushed him away, and I think he apologized, but I got up to leave, and he leapt in front of me and locked the door and stood, blocking it. He took me by the wrists, not hard and not gentle. He sat me down on the bed. There wasn't a lot of room between the bed and table. The next thing I remember is he grabbed my blouse and tore it open. It was my favorite blouse, and though he didn't tear it, he ripped three buttons off of it. He squeezed my breast really hard and bruised my chest bone. The padded bra kept me from bruising in the tender tissue, I assume. The next moment he had my skirt and was trying to pull it up. It was a red A-line skirt, and he tore the seam from the intended slit in the back to just below my fanny. He pulled down my pantyhose and garments with one pull. He grabbed them both at the same time. I don't know how he became exposed, but his pants were down, between his ankles and knees. He forced himself on me and forced my legs apart and penetrated about one and a half to two inches. He was not fully erect, so he could not fully penetrate. He was grabbing at his penis, and I pushed him off, He forced me back down, restraining me with his palms on my shoulders. I kicked up at him and hit him, and somehow he let me go long enough for me to begin to sit up. I pulled on my garments and hose enough to get out the door. As I was leaving, he said no one would ever believe me. Look at you, look at me, quote-unquote. I don't even really know if I took my shoes with me. I imagine that I did, but can't swear to it. I don't remember leaving or how I got to my dorm. I went to bed and pretended I was sick. I didn't speak to anyone, except when a female came in, an MTC employee, I think, to ask if I needed anything. I did not report this incident. Now we are on page three of McKenna's statement, and at the bottom paragraph, she goes on to detail what happened after this incident. 
I went on my mission to Washington, D.C. and was placed in a trio. I was waiting for a visa. One evening I began to feel agitated. I became very agitated and told the sisters I had to go get my camera out of the car. They didn't want me to go alone, but I went anyway. I had a full-blown panic attack. I didn't really understand what I was experiencing. I told them someone tried to rape me. They called our mission president, Swinton, S-W-I-N-T-O-N. He sent me to live with a family in Provo, and she gives the name of the family, but I will not give it here. There, I was sent to a therapist. I don't remember his name, but he talked about himself the whole hour and kept telling me I had a secret. Now, the next line at the top of page four is a bombshell, but McKenna reports it matter-of-factly and only in passing. The next line reads, I had to meet with Elder Thomas S. Monson before I could be released back into the mission field. Let me read that once again, because you may think I made a mistake. I assure you I did not make a mistake, nor am I kidding. Quote, I had to meet with Elder Thomas S. Monson before I could be released back into the mission field. Period. End of quote. Now, I went on my mission in 1979, and if I had had a panic attack and had to return from my mission in order to get counseling and be cleared to go back on my mission, I expect that I would have met with my bishop at Tops. I would have met with my stake president. In no scenario can I imagine me meeting with an apostle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in order to be cleared to go back on my mission. This is significant. And I will also say that this one line may indeed be the reason that the BYU Police Department did not want the public to know about the existence of this written statement by McKenna Denson. Obviously, I cannot know that for sure, but it certainly seems that when McKenna Denson wrote about meeting with Elder Thomas S. Monson, and she wrote this on December 7th of 2017 to the police, and Thomas S. Monson was then currently the president of the church, that indeed the BYU Police Department or whoever was pulling their strings, did not want this information in public view. Her letter goes on, I went to Wisconsin to complete my mission. Now she jumps ahead a few years. I reported the incidents of President Bishop to my bishop in about 1988. That would be Ron Levitt, the bishop of her young single adult ward. She goes on to give his name. His name was Ron Levitt. He reported to the stake president, who called and reported to church headquarters in Salt Lake. She goes on, Elder Carlos Acey visited me in Provo or Orem and interviewed me. I reported everything except the rape. I didn't think of it as rape, as he didn't have a full erection. Elder Acey said he would investigate the incident and let me know the outcome. Now to break from this statement, to review some additional facts, this is the same Ron Levitt who was interviewed by the media on Thursday, March 22, 2018, the same week this story broke in the press. And what he said was he remembered McKenna Denson coming to him and reporting that Joseph Bishop had taken her and maybe some other sister missionary down into a room in the basement and showed them some pornography or something like that. His memory was not exactly accurate on that point. His memory, however, was very accurate when he said he never told anybody up the chain of authority in the church 
about this report by McKenna Denson. This is the same interview where he says that he had received at least three phone calls from church authorities in the 10 days prior to his interview with the media. I wondered out loud in a prior episode why it was that church authorities had to call him three times about their investigation of this case and whether they were simply gathering information from Ron Levitt or whether they were also giving information and direction to him about what he should and should not say to the media. At any rate, I will add here that if what Ron Levitt said to the media was correct was that he did not believe McKenna Denson and that he thought she was neurotic and made up these kind of vile stories against respected church leaders with no basis in fact, it is strange that Ron Levitt subsequently signed McKenna Denson's temple recommend in order to allow her to go to the temple to get married, especially when the last question on the Temple Recommend interview has to do with whether you are honest in all your dealings with your fellow man. And if Ron Levitt really felt this way about McKenna Denson, it is also strange that Ron Levitt allowed his teenage daughter to go live with McKenna Denson when McKenna Denson was residing in Taiwan. The reason I bring up these details is because they seem to conflict with Ron Levitt's opinion of McKenna Denson that he told the press in late March of 2018. To put a fine point on it, his actions at the time indicate that he had a very high opinion of McKenna Denson and her trustworthiness, enough to sign her temple recommend, and enough to allow his teenage daughter to go live with her for the summer when McKenna Denson was in Taiwan. It is only now that he is being interviewed by the press in 2018 that he wants to say that she was neurotic and that he did not believe what it was that she was claiming about Joseph Bishop. McKenna Denson goes on with her statement to the police. About a year later, I was married and living in Taiwan. I had two daughters that were born there. Life moved on and the MTC incident became further removed from my mind. I returned to the U.S. about three years later and divorced my husband. I have, over the years, tried to find out from my bishops and stake presidents the outcome of the investigation. Was it taken seriously? Was there a church council held? Was he excommunicated? Or did he deny the incidents? Now, in the next part of the statement, McKenna Denson describes what happened in 2010. In the spring of 2010, I was in Utah and called church headquarters myself, requesting information. I was transferred several times, and finally a man told me I was not entitled to know if there was a church court, if there was an investigation, or the outcome of any investigation. I told him I had a gun and knew where Joseph Bishop lived, and I would shoot the bastard myself. It wasn't but ten minutes when two uniformed officers showed up at my door. I told them that Joseph Bishop had sexually assaulted me at the MTC and that Salt Lake invalidated my claim and refused to give me any answers. Since I had no gun with me, they didn't charge me with anything. Now that's the bottom of page four of McKenna Denson's statement. You will remember that this is the place where in the first church statement issued on Tuesday, March 20th, the church tried to make it sound like McKenna Denson had reported this allegation in 2010 and then church officials reported this to the proper police authorities, when in reality they did not report the allegation of the rape to the proper police authorities. They reported the death threat that McKenna made against Joseph Bishop to the proper police authorities, and indeed they showed up at her doorstep within 10 minutes of the phone call. But they did not charge her with anything because they concluded she did not have a gun. It was not a serious threat. Going now to page 5. Last year, around this time, 
I spoke with my stake president, Bertaldo, B-E-R-T-A-L-D-O. I spoke with my stake president, Bertaldo. Now, this is her report that she made in 2016. Last year around this time, I spoke with my stake president, Bertaldo, about the event in the MTC. I didn't explain details, but told him he had sexually assaulted me. President Bertaldo was very upset that that happened and promised to contact Salt Lake and look into it and get back with me. It has been a year and still no word. Now McKenna details how it was that she contacted Joseph Bishop in order to do her interview with him, which she recorded and which was then leaked to the internet on March 19, 2018. Around the week before Thanksgiving this year, that would be 2017, I called the MTC and asked for information on the whereabouts of Joseph Bishop. They referred me to the mission office in Salt Lake at church headquarters. I eventually was able to speak with Jordan Kessler, K-E-S-S-L-E-R. I told him Joseph Bishop was my mission president and I was hoping to get in touch. Mr. Kessler gave me Bishop's address in Chandler, Arizona, and the name of his wife, blank. Her first name is mentioned in the statement. Out of respect to Joseph Bishop's wife's privacy, I will not repeat it here. I looked online and found Bishop's ward, and there was a number for the missionaries serving in his ward. I dialed the number, and that number is given here in the report, but I will not repeat it. I dialed the number for the missionaries and spoke to an elder Blank. The last name of this elder is given in this report, but I see no purpose in mentioning his last name here. I dialed the number of the missionaries and spoke to an elder blank. I told him I was looking for my former mission president and hoped I had found him. I told him President Bishop had served as mission president of the Argentina Buenos Aires North Mission as well as the MTC in Provo. He, the missionary, asked his companion, who said that the same brother Bishop was the one who served in both of those missions. I thanked Elder Blank and asked for any contact information he could offer. Elder Blank gave me Joseph Bishop's cell number, and that cell number is given here in the statement, but I will not repeat it on this podcast. Not long after, I called the Provo PD and explained a little about what had happened to me at the MTC. I soon received a call from Sergeant Robert Nelson, and we talked for a bit. Now, Robert Nelson is the same Officer Nelson whose name appears in the nine-page police report. He conducted the investigation together with another officer with the BYU Police Department. I soon received a call from Sergeant Robert Nelson, and we talked for a bit. He checked on a few details and called me again. I believe we spoke two or three times on the same day. When I learned the detectives had taken me seriously and wanted to come to Colorado to interview me, I booked a flight to Phoenix, a rental car, and a hotel. I then called President Bishop on his cell phone and told him I was writing an article on high-ranking LDS officials, and since he had served two missions, I was really interested in speaking with him. He corrected me, saying he had served five missions. He said he felt special because he hadn't been contacted by anyone in a long time that had any interest in him. We agreed to meet on the next Saturday, which was December 1st, 2017, at 2 o'clock. He gave me his address, although I already had it, and we agreed to meet there. I'm now on page 6, the final page of the statement by McKenna Denson to the BYU police. I flew to Phoenix on December 1st. On the morning of the 2nd, I called his cell phone and told him 
that President Gillespie, the temple president from Taiwan, was running a bit late, and would he mind coming to my hotel at 3 o'clock? This is where McKenna Denson is pretending that she has another interview with another authority that she is interviewing as part of this article she is supposedly writing as a reporter on church authorities. Once again, on the morning of the 2nd, I called his cell phone and told him that President Gillespie, the temple president from Taiwan, was running a bit late and would he mind coming to my hotel at 3 o'clock. He asked if he could bring his wife and son. I said, absolutely, I'd love to talk with them, but that part of the meeting would be conducted alone. He agreed to meet me at 3 o'clock at the Hawthorne Suites at 5858 West Chandler Drive in the conference room. He was early. That's where the rough draft, six-page statement of McKenna Denson to the BYU Police Department concludes. So now, a few closing thoughts. In summary, the BYU Police Department initially released a nine-page police report to the media on Tuesday, March 20th, 2018, in response to the media's request that was almost completely redacted. The media pushed back, and by the evening of the next day, Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, the BYU Police Department relented and produced to the media a much less redacted version of the police reports. But the less redacted version still had redacted sentences in it. We now know what was behind three of those redactions. Number one, that Joseph Bishop had admitted to sexually assaulting a second sister missionary and that this assault occurred in his home and that this assault consisted of giving her a back rub where he rubbed her buttocks. Number two, the redactions were designed to cover up the fact that the police interview of Joseph Bishop was recorded and has additional details in it that are not in the police report so that the public would not know of the existence of this recording and therefore would not be able to access it through a Freedom of Information Act request. Third, the police redacted their police reports to cover up the fact that there was a six-page rough draft statement from McKenna Denson in their police file, which at a minimum on page four mentions the fact that, quote, I had to meet with Elder Thomas S. Monson before I could be released back into the mission field. In any normal case, none of these redactions would have been made by the police department. There is nothing in that information that in a normal case would be redacted. A police department acting pursuant to its normal standard operating procedures would have disclosed that information in the reports they released to the media and not redacted that information. This is suggestive of the fact that the decision to make these three redactions was not made by the BYU Police Department who under normal circumstances would not have made these redactions. There is nothing in these redactions that is permitted under the law and nothing that a police department would be averse to releasing to the public. And yet, the redactions were made, which raises the question of who was it who decided to make these redactions. Once again, the BYU Police Department is wholly owned and operated by BYU, Brigham Young University, and Brigham Young University is wholly owned and operated by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We know that the LDS Church, or at least its lawyer, was conducting an intensive investigation into this case as far back as February, if not January, of 2018. 
It is difficult to believe that as part of that investigation, they did not receive a copy of these police reports, and it is quite possible that the version received by the church in response to its request for the police reports was not redacted at all. So all I am saying is that at some point prior to the media requesting a copy of these police reports on March 19th or March 20th of 2018, the church almost certainly already had a copy of the police reports. And the decision was made by somebody, and it looks like it was made by somebody other than the BYU police, that certain information would be redacted in order to hide the fact that the police department had more information than what it wanted the public to know. And finally, because the BYU Police Department is owned and operated and run by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and because the chain of authority goes directly from the Chief of Police to the Vice President of the Brigham Young University Student Life Department, and from there up to the President of the University, and from the President of the University up to the Apostles, we have a situation that is beginning to look suspicious indeed. And unfortunately... Because the BYU Police Department is run by the church, every member of the BYU Police Department, up to and including Chief Stott, has their paycheck signed by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Think about it. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is being sued by a woman who claims she was raped in 1984 when she was a sister missionary by the president of the Missionary Training Center in Provo, Utah. The people who end up doing the investigation are the BYU Police Department a wholly owned subsidiary of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? And now we know that behind the redactions in the reports that they released to the press is information that should not have been redacted and is information that specifically shows the police department has additional information that they don't want the public to know about. These do not appear to be actions of a police department who in the normal course of business is responding to a public disclosure request by the media. Instead, these appear to be actions taken by a church that is in control of the BYU Police Department because the church doesn't want the public to know about this additional information that is in the possession of the BYU Police Department. And let me stress, information that is in the possession of the BYU Police Department is necessarily in the possession of BYU, which means it's necessarily in the possession of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This is a massive conflict of interests. And the reason it's a conflict of interest is because it allows the church to pull the strings of the BYU Police Department as to what it is that they will and will not make known to the public. And indeed, that appears to be exactly what has happened here. Looking at this from another point of view, according to McKenna Denson, the members of the BYU Police Department that she dealt with were consummate professionals. They took her claim seriously. They went out of their way to drive to Arizona to conduct a complete and thorough interview of Joseph Bishop and a no-holds-barred investigation of this case. They did everything by the book the way it should have been done. And I think kudos are in order for the BYU Police Department. The strange thing is, is that after their investigation is done, and now that the McKenna-Denson case has hit the fan and the press is requesting copies of the police reports, suddenly this very professional BYU Police Department starts acting anything but professional. It starts acting like it is a political entity instead of a law enforcement agency. And that also makes me think 
that strings are being pulled by people above them in order to make them act this way. They are the front men. They are the fall guys. They are the patsies. And if I were in Chief Larry Stott's shoes, I would be having a lot of heartburn at night between my duty under the law and my duty to the church, who is my boss, who signs my paychecks. I do not envy him, his position. Another thing that makes the BYU police look so much like the Keystone cops when it comes to disclosing these police reports is they can't seem to disclose the same police reports twice. Initially, they disclose to the press police reports that are almost completely redacted. They are all blacked out. The next day, they release a copy of the police reports to the media that is much less redacted. That is the one that I have been going off of primarily. But then if you look at the copy of the police reports that was put up on Mormon leaks and which was obviously given to somebody else, you will see that that is redacted in a different way from the one that was given to the press. And on top of that, this additional copy of the police reports that has come into my possession, which was obviously released by the police to somebody else, is different from both the one that went to the media as well as the one that was originally released as well as the one that was put up on Mormon leaks. So here at a minimum, we have four different versions of redactions to the same police reports. This does not look like one police department and one person making these decisions. It looks like as time goes by, more and more people get involved in what redactions should be made, what information should be covered up, and ultimately, it appears that the decision was made to try and hide the fact that the police department has in its possession more information than the police department wants the public to know. I should say, than the police department or whoever is pulling their strings wants the public to know. Now for the last bombshell of this evening. You will remember that in a prior episode, I dropped some hints regarding the letter that was written by David Jordan to McKenna Denson's attorney, and which he also sent a copy of to Greg Bishop, who was Joseph Bishop's attorney, as well as his son. I mentioned that I had a copy of that seven-page letter, and that on page four, there were some bombshells. I'm going to go now to the paragraph in the middle of page four of the letter written by David Jordan, the church's attorney, to McKenna Denson's attorney, Craig Vernon, dated March 13th, 2018. And the reason I'm going to go into this here is because it ties directly into McKenna Denson's claim that she met with Elder Thomas S. Monson in order to be cleared to go back on her mission. Now, David Jordan's letter is designed to put McKenna Denson in the worst light possible. And in the middle of page four, what he is doing is he is poo-pooing her story about having met with Elder Carlos E. Acey. Here's what it says in this letter by David Jordan. On the issue of notice, your client also claims that she reported the alleged abuse in 1986 to Elder Carlos E. Acey, then Executive Director of the Missionary Department. The Church has no record of such a report to Elder Acey, who is deceased. Now, First off, if you look at that language, that will sound hauntingly familiar to what Eric Hawkins, the church spokesman, was spouting on the week this story broke. Indeed, in several places, including this place, we can see 
that Eric Hawkins was getting his talking points from the dossier and the smear letter that David Jordan, the church's lawyer, had assembled prior to that point. That's where Eric Hawkins is getting his talking points is from the dirt that their hired gun went out and dug up on McKenna. But going back to this sentence, on the issue of notice, your client also claims that she reported the alleged abuse in 1986 to Elder Carlos E. Acey, then Executive Director of the Missionary Department, period. Hang on a second. Let's consider that. That was a really, really good guess that McKenna made if she made up the story that she met with the general authority and that that general authority was Carlos Acey because he was then, according to this letter by David Jordan, he was then the executive director of the missionary department. In other words, out of all the general authorities that McKenna Denson could have picked to have meet with her, Elder Carlos E. Acey, as the executive director of the missionary department, would have been exactly the right general authority who would have met with her over these allegations. It is the last line in this paragraph, however, that is the real bombshell, because here I believe David Jordan inadvertently tips his hand, and in an effort to poo-poo McKenna Denson, he ends up disclosing the fact that he has access to information that may indeed corroborate her story. Leading into that sentence, the church has no record of such a report to Elder Acey, who is deceased. Now the sentence. Indeed, Ms. Denson's only contact with general authorities at that time was in connection with her efforts to persuade them that she should be allowed to return to the mission field. Period. Let me read that again. Indeed, Ms. Denson's only contact with general authorities at that time was in connection with her efforts to persuade them that she should be allowed to return to the mission field. Okay, hang on a second, David Jordan. What general authorities are you talking about? You obviously can't be talking about Elder Carlos Acey because you've just discounted her story about having met with him. You obviously can't be talking about Joseph Bishop because he never became a general authority. So what general authorities are you talking about that McKenna Denson made contact with in order to persuade them that she should be allowed to return to the mission field? And why is McKenna Denson a nobody sister missionary in a church that has tens of thousands of missionaries at the time meeting with any general authorities in order to persuade them that she should go back into the mission field? Why are these general authorities giving her the time of day, much less meeting with her? And what evidence and documentation are you looking at, Mr. Jordan, that lets you know that Ms. Denson's only contact with general authorities at that time was in connection with her efforts to persuade them that she should be allowed to return to the mission field? And was, in fact, one of those general authorities that you know about, David Jordan, and that is in the information that you have perused in the church files that you had access to, was one of those general authorities that McKenna Denson met with, Elder Thomas S. Monson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Until next time, the investigation continues. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, 
This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.